Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. So we're in week three of, as Lorraine said, what is turning out to be a rather fascinating and fun series, this Fire Pit Conversations. And if we whittle this series down to its essence... It is about relationships. It's about creating a relaxing space around a fire where people from Oak Hills can connect with each other and have a conversation about an important topic. And each person who's there uh, has a voice and their presence matters. And she mentioned we've, we've had two weeks of this. We've had 12 groups that we have uh, had signups for, 10 people in each group. Each group has been filled. All 12 groups have been filled uh, to the maximum, and then there's been wait lists for about 10 of the 12 groups. And so obviously, based on the response the past two weeks, people seem to have a deep desire for this. It's been amazing, really, to now beginning to receive emails and to begin to hear stories of people's experiences in these groups. And one of the common themes is simply the connection with other people from the church who are on the same journey. And there are more groups that are going to be happening, and I'm going to talk about those when we come to the end of today. And the tables are in the back. You can go back there and talk to the folks who are facilitating and get questions answered and sign up. But once again, this fire pit experiment has moved to the front burner what all of us already know to be true and what every research study and survey confirms to be true, and that is the way to fulfillment and happiness and meaning is through relationships and being connected with Other people. And this week we're considering conversations and their role in fostering connection and in nurturing relationship. The importance of being with other people and talking about things that matter. And today, what I want to do is I just want to wander around a bit uh, and explore a few ideas related to the topic of conversations. And the first area I want to wander around in is in something I'm just referring to as surprised by loneliness. I don't have any scientific data to back this up necessarily, but there seems to be a common irony occasionally experienced in this life. It's almost like this irony runs in the bloodstream of the world, and it reveals something about the human soul. So let me just state it, and then I'll try and explain it. Today's perfect solution becomes tomorrow's haunting problem. I remember when our kids were younger and Christmas would finally come and they would rip open their presents and there had been all this anticipation leading up to it. They tore open their presents and there were all sorts of new toys and games and gadgets to play with and enjoy. But not long after all the hype was over, the kids would once again start to complain about being bored. And now the boredom even ran deeper because these things that were wrapped under the tree that they thought were going to finally satisfy and keep boredom away didn't, so there was one less thing in the world to keep their boredom from consuming them. Here's another example. Technology is supposed to increase efficiency and make life easier and make life better, so we have email and scanners and online everything and PDFs and faster computers and smaller computers and larger hard drives and cloud-based computing and iPhones and iPads and all sorts of other things intended to expedite the process and free up time so we are more efficient 
and life is easier and better. But I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who would say technology has made life easier or better or given them more time so they can relax and do what they want. Instead, technology has made it possible to do more in the same amount of time. So the technology that was supposed to make things better, the solution, has just made us busier and more exhausted, the problem. One other example, more to this morning's point. There are a myriad of mechanisms, as we all know, designed to keep us connected to other people. Facebook and text messaging, Twitter and Instagram, Candygrams, holograms, Match.com, eHarmony, many others, and yet, again, no scientific proof behind this. I wonder if all of this technology designed to keep us connected has, in fact, made some people more lonely. Now, maybe it's a chicken and the egg thing. You know, what comes first? Maybe we are lonely, and then we try to fix it with technology and it doesn't work, but maybe and I guess I'm suggesting this, technology actually fosters our loneliness. We live every day in a world where technology makes it possible to connect with someone who lives on the other side of the world, but in doing so, perhaps the same technology makes it more difficult to connect with the person who is sitting on the other side of the table. Why are you looking at your phone? We're supposed to be having dinner together. Yeah, but I just connected with a new Facebook friend over in Australia. Maybe in some way, the ease of virtual connection increases the dis-ease we have with real connection. So maybe all of the mechanisms designed to connect us have contributed to a hidden epidemic of loneliness. I'm sure you've seen those commercials for a new pharmaceutical drug tended to combat whatever the thing is. And at the end of the commercial, the announcer says, and they say this really fast, Side effects include sleepiness and shortness of breath and fits of rage and loss of appetite and hair loss and depression and weight gain and accelerated aging. And in some instances, your head might fall off and in other instances, you might die, but your aching knee will feel better. (laughs) Regarding technology intended to increase connection, I wonder if a fair warning might be side effects may include an increased sense of loneliness, greater difficulty admitting it, and deep desire to actually connect with a real person, but less ability to actually do so. I hope this doesn't sound like the pathetic whining of an older generation. In fact, I'm rather certain it sounds like that. But there are some voices, important voices, who are now suggesting loneliness is most prominent, oddly enough, ironically enough, in those who spend the most time connecting on social media. So the solution, let's be more connected, may now be the problem. The thing designed to bring us together may be the thing that is, in fact, pushing us apart. And for our purposes, it is good to name this hidden issue of loneliness. I think more people are lonely, but it is harder to admit because there are supposedly so many ways to be connected. And so I simply remind us today, as we think and talk about relationships and conversations, I remind us, a church is a community of people on a shared journey. God made us to be in relationship with others, to be connected, to link together and seek God together and explore important issues together. Church is about relationship with God 
in community with one another. So this is a good time to tell you about another really good opportunity that is coming up and I think is designed for growth in relationship. And you can see this on the screen and you can read about this on our website, but there's a retreat that's happening on February 2nd and February 3rd. It's called Understanding People, an Experiential Exploration of the Enneagram. Don't let that big word fool you. It just means a tool to help people understand how they're wired. It's over Super Bowl weekend, so this will help you process why people are acting so insane watching two teams no one cares about. So the cost is $65, sorry, the cost is $65, Uh, lunch will be provided at the retreat, every bit of the uh, proceeds will go beyond the food and materials, will be donated to the International Refugee Committee, so we're not trying, no one's trying to make a bunch of money on this, the Enneagram is a tool that helps increase self-awareness, who am I and why am I, and the Enneagram is one tool to help get at that, and it helps people understand what makes other people tick. It answers, it deals with questions like, what are our deepest motivations? Why do we think, feel, and act the ways we do, and so on? And one of our own, uh, Evie DeRus, a marriage and family therapist in town here, is going to be leading this. Some of you have experienced this before. It's well worth the time. There's already a bunch of people signed up for it. This is not just for people who are Christian or religious, so we invite you to come to this, bring a friend, go to the website under event registration and you can sign up. So we talked about surprise by loneliness. Let's talk about training to listen. From our scripture reading, James 1.19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And it seems to me when we find phrases like take note of this in the Bible, it seems smart to tune in and take note of it. Solomon wrote much of the Old Testament book of Proverbs, and the book of James is considered to be the New Testament version of Proverbs. And this single verse is one of those magnificent biblical truths that possesses the power to literally reshape, reform, and transform a relationship. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, what I said might sound a bit overhyped, but think of a friendship, a work relationship, a parent-child relationship, a marriage, a family dynamic, a neighbor. And imagine how it would be dramatically different if we took note of this verse and in our conversations we were anxious to listen to the other person's story and perspective because more than anything, we wanted to understand them. Imagine being the kind of person whose default in conversations was to ask questions and then listen to the perspective and to the story of the other person. So often, as you know, we are in a conversation that really isn't the conversation. It is a series of lectures. We give one, then they give one, then we give another one, and on and on it goes. Or maybe, better yet, it's a courtroom. We are the prosecutor, and they are the defendant, and they are the prosecutor, and we are the defendant. One of the obvious elephants in the room of our nation is the ongoing tension and division between people who have different perspectives about you name it. And so often, the interactions become lectures in what we might call screamo style. And so against all this is a verse like Proverbs 18.12. Fools find No pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing 
their own opinions. That's like the Oak Hills version of amen is ouch. I mean, that stinks. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. If we want to think about ways the church can authentically be relevant these days, then let's talk about training to become a community of Jesus' people who find delight in understanding those within our own faith community who have a different story and a different perspective than we do, and then being a community of Jesus' people who find delight in understanding the stories and the perspectives of our friends and co-workers, especially when their views conflict and even contradict with our Christian perspective. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. See, listening is a matter of training. And training has to do with who we are becoming, the kind of person we are becoming, the kind of faith community, church, we are becoming. Listening is a character quality the Spirit of God wants to form in us. And as we live more fully in the kingdom of Jesus, we will grow and become a more instinctive and default listener like he was. You know, I do as well, there are all sorts of techniques to improve listening, and they are helpful. There's a book called Difficult Conversations. I know some of you have looked at. It's a book worth reading. It's a good book. I would recommend it. It explains the details of how to have healthy conversations, but techniques and tactics and tools can only take us so far because who we are always, eventually, shows up and rules the day. Let me read from the authors of this book, Difficult Conversations. It's on the screen uh, if you want to follow. The heart of good listening is authenticity. People read not only your words and posture, but what's going on inside of you. If your stance isn't genuine, the words won't matter. What will be communicated almost invariably is whether you are genuinely curious, whether you genuinely care about the other person. If your intentions are false, no amount of careful wording or posture will help. If your intentions are good, even clumsy language won't hinder you. Listening is only powerful and effective if it is authentic. Authenticity means that you are listening because you are curious and because you care, not just because you're supposed to. The issue then is this. Are you curious? Do you care? And as followers of Jesus... The curiosity to listen and the care to listen are a work of God's spirit within us. He cultivates a listening heart in us. Not only so we are able to listen, but in the words of James, so we are anxious or quick to listen. We lead with listening. When I think of conversations Julie and I have had through the years of our marriage and I try to construct a profile of my default mode in conversations with her, there are, obviously, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of positive attributes in my profile. (laughs) But one not-so-shining attribute is that I formulate my next lecture while she's talking. And even though I'm looking at her, to try to create the illusion of listening, my mind is elsewhere. 
I'm feverishly typing out my next lecture on the keyboard in my head. And I can't wait to deliver this lecture because it is so good and I'm sure it will be included in the history books and read by future generations. Proverbs 18.13, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Or, my translation, to answer before listening, really shows what a knucklehead you are. So the fire pits are relaxed settings for conversations where we start by listening to one another and entering into the other's story and seeking to understand the other's perspective and give each other space to share, especially when the other person has a different view, a different take, a different angle than we do. See, listening is a training issue. Those of us who talk all the time need to back away. Those of us who hide in silence need to step forward. And one simple exercise, I know this is unsatisfying in terms of the practicalities, but one simple exercise to train in listening, to start it, to enter the process, is to ask open-ended questions. If you just go through your day or go through life and pay attention to the number of people who want to talk and how few people ask questions. It starts to point to the reason why there's so much talking and yelling and not too much listening or understanding. Thirdly, let's talk about this idea of being shaped by words. James chapter 3 verses 5 through 10 is an essay on the power of the tongue. And one verse sounds like it was written by an investigative reporter after following me around for a couple of hours. And here's what it says. James 3, verse 9. With our tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. And then a couple words later, James says, My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So I'm stopped by this verse. James says, with our words, we worship God. And with our words, we condemn and we curse people who are made in God's image and who bear God's image. And then he says to drive it home, this should not be. It should not be that the people of Jesus honor him in this moment and curse other people in the next. It should not be that the people of Jesus worship God today and then curse someone tomorrow for their beliefs or their choices or their lifestyle or whatever. Our words matter because they have shaping power. God spoke, and the world came into existence. His words have creative power, and we were made in His image. So in a broken and fallen and incomplete way for sure, our words have creative power, or they have destructive power. Our words matter. And I don't need to belabor this because most of, have ex- most of us have experienced, probably all of us, the shaping power of words. 
creative and healing words someone spoke into us, or destructive words someone spoke into us, or an island of silence where someone left us stranded. Our words matter. They have creative power. They have destructive power. The echo of words spoken or not spoken lasts a long, long time, even a lifetime. And throughout our lives, it seems to me, we invest time and energy and money to realize the creative words spoken into us, erase the destructive words spoken into us, and fill up the silence. Let me give you an example. These are words I heard roughly 45 years ago, and I heard them consistently for about a decade. Four words. You are Jeff's brother. Seems like a harmless phrase. Rather benign, and it is benign. In fact, one of the finest people on this planet is my brother Jeff. So I've always been honored to be known as his brother. But there was a season many, many years ago when being Jeff's brother was also a sizable weight to carry. And my name, Mike, and my path, and my personality, and my interests, and passions, and longings were evicted by the expectations jammed into those two benign words. Jeff's brother. And my heart, and my life, and my personality, and my sense of self, and my story has been profoundly shaped and at times deformed by those two not-so-benign words. Our words matter. They have creative power. So the power of conversation is that we have a chance, literally, to shape, reshape, or heal another's soul with our words. Proverbs 12, verse 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And I believe there is a direct one-to-one correlation between our expertise as a trained listener and our ability to bring healing through our words. As the Spirit forms us to be excellent listeners, we understand the landscape of another's soul. We come to understand their terrain. We come to understand who they are and how they are wired and where they ache. And because we know and understand them, because we've listened, we can then speak creative and life-giving words into them. There aren't too many things I feel comfortable guaranteeing with absolute certainty. But I feel pretty confident about this. There are people in your life right now who've been wounded by words or wounded by silence. You may be close to them, you may live with them, or you may be casually connected to them. It doesn't matter. They may follow Jesus. They may not. They may love God. They may not even believe there is a God. But they need healing. And there's not a one of us sitting here, regardless of age, who is not surrounded by people where there is someone who needs healing. And here's the thing. The Spirit of God can use you and your words 
to bring them the healing they need. So last, I want to wander into this idea of rejecting anger. James 1.19 Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It may seem strange to read about listening and speaking and anger all in the same sentence, but the Spirit of God knows anger is never far from human interaction and conversation. In fact, in our current cultural setting, a fitting variation of this verse might go something like this. Everyone is quick to become angry and quick to speak and slow to listen. So the default for many is anger, followed by toxic words, followed by hours or even days of silence and suffering and separation from the people who have been harmed. And then maybe, eventually, we listen. See, we have it backwards. It's not surprising. It's true to form. In our sin and self-absorption, instead of living in the right-side-up kingdom of God, listen, speak, patience. We opt to live in the upside-down kingdom of self. Anger, yell, suffer, then maybe listen. In conversations that go haywire, or in conversations that go south, anger is almost always in the mix. And in our culture today, anger seems to be constantly simmering at the surface. In some relationships, anger is the air people breathe. It hovers over the marriage. It hovers over the family. It's in the workplace. It's just hanging there in the neighborhood. There was a recent Wall Street Journal essay called How to Resist Our Age of Resentment. And the author wrote these words. It's the rare, hyper-evolved bird among us. A Buddhist bird, probably, who can wander the halls of social media without feeling the slightest twinge of resentment. See, in many ways, anger is the fuel of social media. Virtual fights attract virtual crowds. I'm 53 years old, and for about 40, maybe a few more, of my years, I did regular experiments with anger, and eventually it discovered it does not work for me. Now, I know some people are going to say, well, wait a minute, James says be slow to anger. So he's not outright getting rid of it. He doesn't outright reject anger. He's simply saying, take a while before you get there. Likewise, many people argue that Jesus was angry when he cleared out the merchants in the temple. And so we have this ever popular idea of righteous anger, which becomes the trump card we play whenever we want to justify our anger. And I get this. I get the James argument, I get the Jesus argument. So I'm just going to tell you this. Because of who I am, or maybe better said, because of who I am not, my story and my journey and my brokenness, because of all of that, I can't do slow to anger with any confidence I have any clue what slow even means. 
And I can't do righteous anger because I have never employed the services of anger and come out the other side saying, wow, that was a glorious experience of righteousness and goodness. (laughs) I do not possess the quality of character to handle the dynamite of anger without blowing things up. So I've come to a point in my life, and I'm here imperfectly. This is not some, wow, isn't he something. It's imperfect, it's flawed, there's setbacks every day, and so on. But I've come to a point where I choose to reject anger in its myriad of forms. Why? Because I simply can't do it without ruining something, or more likely, someone. And I think we should be cautious about copying Jesus' behavior without carefully considering the inner quality of character he possessed and from which his external behaviors emerged. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There will be times, as we all know, in conversations when things are said or implied, and if we are not attentive, the wick of anger will be lit and an obvious or subtle explosion of some sort will happen and damage will be done. And in my opinion, chuck this in the garbage if you want to, but in my opinion, defensiveness is the telltale sign the anger wick has just been lit. Meaning, defensiveness in the blood, you know it's there. You can deny it, but you know it's there, and it's starting to rumble through you. Defensiveness in the body language, other people know it. Defensiveness in the eyes, defensiveness in the face, defensiveness in the words is the starting point of anger. It doesn't seem so because nothing's being thrown yet, but it is the starting point. It's the sign the wick just got lit. So if we're going to reject anger, it starts by turning away from defensiveness. Or better said, it starts by recognizing there's defensiveness. It's in my blood. I'm going to name this. I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to admit this right now. Hey, i got to tell you, I'm sorry about this, but I'm getting defensive. You may be thinking this right now. Anyway, I'm getting defensive. This is starting to really agitate me. I'm not sure why. And we just call out what's in the blood so that it's on the table and we can actually deal with it. And I realize I'm projecting my broken self who can't handle anger onto you by suggesting we reject it. And it's not fair for me to project my story on you. And in the past, I've been here 20-some years, I've only projected my story on you about, I don't know, 8,000 times. (laughs) So here we go again. But I want to take James at face value and Solomon and simply declare that anger is too destructive and I am too weak and maybe you are as well and the world is too divided and there's already too much anger. So I think it is time to reject anger in its various forms and find a more redemptive way. Maybe the way of gentleness. Maybe we'll call it civility. Maybe we'll call it grace. Something, anything other than anger.
Scott McKnight, one of my favorite writers and speakers, wrote a book called The Fellowship of Difference. And I'm going to end with what he says there because it makes the point regarding anger. He says, The church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. When this happens, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed by God to be. The church is God's show and tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as a family. And so he goes on and suggests the implications of this for the church. And the implications are that the church is a community of different genders, different incomes, different races, different cultures, different musical tastes, different ages, different marital statuses, different politics, different moral histories, different present-day struggles, different character flaws, different vices, different addictions, different looks, different educations, different physical abilities, different shapes, different sizes. And we reject anger. We reject cursing. We reject labeling. And we learn to love. And we journey together. And we sit at fires. And cultivate community and connectedness. And as we learn this over time, we give a fresh voice to Paul's magnificent phrase in the book of Ephesians. Now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. So we have a few more fire pits that are in the back for you to go to and, t- and sign up at. I mentioned this before. The topic may not compel you, but the opportunity to connect may compel you, and that's reason enough. If you're just going, you know, I'd love to do that. Forget the topics. Just go sign up. But some of these topics may particularly grab you, so I'm going to introduce what they are. All the facilitators will be at the tables, and you can go back there and talk with them, sign up and get the information and when these are going to be happening. There'll be a group on transformational discipleship. Again, one night, not committing your life away, one night, couple hours, around a fire with ten others, nine others, having a conversation about, in this case, transformational discipleship. What does it mean? We say this all the time here. What's that actually look like in the details to become like Jesus? Another one's going to be on money. We had one before. There was a response. Another, uh, two other people want to do one on money. It's where money fits in the kingdom, how we handle it, the challenge of it, and so on. There's another one that's called Living with Faith in Uncertainty. This is the second go-around for this group. It's this idea of this is the world we live in. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of fear. So how do you live with faith in uncertainty? Another one that's brand new, Fostering Intentional Community with Children. Now, the answer is give them an iPad. I'm kidding. But Fostering Intentional Community with Children. What a great one in the world we live in today. And then one other one, what does following Christ look like in the racially, politically, economically divided world? Many of the things we've been touching on in this series. Again, second go around for this group. They've already done it once. Many people wanted to do it again. 
So in a moment when we're done, go to the back. They'll be there. Facilitators will be there, and you can talk to them. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on this day, we worship you with our words, with our mouths, and we pray that as we worship you, we will develop a deeper love and appreciation and a kindness for other people who bear your image. That we might choose love and reject anger, that we might choose gentleness when we handle the truth and reject anger, that we might choose to be civil and to represent you well and reject anger. And we continue to pray for who we are as a faith community, as a church, that you will cultivate our soul, that we, we become an expression of your manifold wisdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming, and as you leave, may the grace and the peace and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thanks for being here.